if you have your Bibles, go with me to Nehemiah chapter 7. So the band is coming down. Nehemiah chapter 7. All right. I'm worn out and ready to go home. Already. Should have gotten a triple, quadruple shot or something. Nehemiah chapter 7. We've been working through Nehemiah. We've been talking about this idea of reformation and being reformers. I'm going to try and lay down some of this. A little bit of background for you. Just here very, very briefly to catch a few of you up here. Talked the idea about being a reformer. We've talked about as reformers, we are building God's kingdom this side of eternity. <clears throat> talked about the idea of having a vision, like the if you were to some of the three things that are necessary for a reformation or to be a reformers. The three things that we see and we've seen in Nehemiah is that you must have a vision for the way things should be, the way things are supposed to be. Of course, we as followers of Jesus would go to God's Word to say, how, how does God want things to be? How is God planned for things to be? And how, are, how is God bringing things to be? And what is God's vision for the way things And we talk just very broadly, is that the earth will be filled with people who love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and people who love their neighbors as themselves. Now that vision gets much more specific, um, but that at a very broad level is uh, part of how God's desire is God's desire, God's vision for the way things should be. <clears throat> we talked about how then as just having a vision for the way things should be is not enough. There must also be heartbreak. There must be an affection for the way things God want, the way God wants things to be. And then of course a sense or a call to do something about it would be the third thing we talked about. <clears throat> Some things God has not called us to go fix. Um, certainly there are things that are without question that God has called us to go bring those about. You know, holiness in our lives and our families, things like that. Those Clearly, we don't have to pray about whether or not to pursue those kinds of things. God has clearly called us to do that. But there is also vision outside, and whether it's in our culture, and things that God has gifted different people to go bring about reformation, and He's not called other people to do those things. So we talked about the idea of building God's kingdom. We are kingdom citizens before we are citizens of the United States. We are first and foremost God's people. But we are also God's people living in a foreign country. And we talked about how Peter says that we, we are in exile. We, we do not belong to this people. We are underneath a foreign rulership, a foreign king. But we still have our king, God, who ultimately reigns over it all. <clears throat> so kind of moving forward in the Nehemiah thing, we've talked about how we should be about the task, the, the task of building God's kingdom. We talked about how we should persevere through all of that. And we talked as we think about this being a part the, of the task, or being about the task, we have we all have different parts. We have different parts of the wall, if you will. Like in Nehemiah's, they're building different parts of the wall different parts of the wall. We have different parts of the wall that we are to be about building. For some of this, for some of us, this means we are building the kingdom at such and such address in Riverside or such and such address in Fairborn or Beaver Creek. And we're building God's kingdom at such and such workplace like Chipotle or maybe you're building God's kingdom as you raise the kids at home all day. But today though, I want to draw our attention to one of the greatest tasks that I believe every follower of God is called to be about and to be a part of. And that is the building of God's community. Being a part, being about the task of building God's community. Last week, we briefly mentioned the idea of being a disciple and making disciples. That, that if there's any tasks that we are to be about. It's, it's the task of being a disciple and making disciples. This week, I want to put that into the context of community. Now, if you've been around renovation for a while, when we typically talk about community, 
we tend to talk about it in a kind of a practical or a kind of a functional sense. What I mean by that is that the body is here for your good, or we all need exhortation from the body daily. We, we need elders to lead us, and we need to live in rhythm with each other. These are kind of more functional qualities and benefits to being a part of the body. This week, however, I want to spend our time talking about a different facet of the diamond that we call God's community, and what does it mean to build God's community? And so my goal for this morning is this. I want to show you how Nehemiah 7 and all 73 verses and all of its names is ultimately pointing to the crucified and risen people of God fashioned together to be the dwelling place of God. Alright, so that's my goal for this morning. Let me say that again. To show you how Nehemiah 7 is ultimately pointing to the crucified and risen people of God, fashioned together to be the dwelling place of God. Now that's a, that's a tall order for this morning, and, and it required an extra thousand words in my outline. So if I talk fast, uh, hopefully you keep up. Remember, the importance of community is not just so that you can run the race well, although that's very important. But I think the importance of community is, is most primarily that you might be, we might be the dwelling place of God. That God would dwell among a people in a people. Now this is a structure that most definitely requires the hands of God in the fashioning and the building of it. And we see in our day, I don't want to get on a sidetrack here, but we see in our day lots of building of churches. We see that all over the place, all around us. We see lots of buildings, and, and it made me think of the old movie Field of Dreams, right? Build it, and they will come. If you don't know what I'm referring to, go Wikipedia. I had to, to re- refresh my memory of this, the plot line. Good old Kevin Costner movie. But anyways, build it, and they will come. And we have the same idea when it comes to religion, build it and God will come. Now, it doesn't work that way. God has to build it. And if God builds it, God will come. Alright? So this is a structure, this is a community that God has to build. <clears throat> For Him to come, He must build it. And what Nehemiah is building here, the walls, and then even the later on we'll see the confessing and the repentance and the and the rebuilding of the people we'll see that we see that the, really the beginning of that here in chapter 7 all this is pointing and it's just a shadow of a reality to come the city representing the place of God was simply pointing to the new covenant people of God the ultimate dwelling place of God which would be his presence in the hearts of his people There's two aspects of community that I want to, I want you to just kind of keep in mind here as we go forward, okay? Because I'm, <clears throat> I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to really float out of, like in between these two, but I just want you to keep two aspects of community. There's the like the universal church community, right? Being a part of all the saints of all times that God has redeemed the universal church. But then that gets lived out practically in the local church, right? So the local community. So there's kind of two aspects here, and we can flesh some of that out in house gathering this week and what some of that looks like. But for now, I just want you to kind of tuck that in the back of your mind, um, because I'm not really going to address those two pieces today. But I want you to keep that in your mind, that recognize there's there's the universal church, the universal community of God, and then... We express that and live that out practically in the local context. Okay, With all that said, Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 1. So here's how we're going to go. We're going to read a few verses, talk about it, read a few verses, talk about it. Right? Verse 1 through 4. Now when the wall had been built, and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot, and while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. 
appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard post and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Just simply, all I want you to notice here, that there's still work to be done. Nehemiah is once again moving on to the next task. He sees that the work is not finished yet. Now it's time to really to kind of steady the ship that they've been building, kind of steady things and move on to really the heart of the matter, right? The goal has not just been to build a wall, and I think that's why Nehemiah gives such little attention to the completion of such. But instead, it's to really get into where we're moving at now in the remainder of Nehemiah. Verse 5, Nehemiah says this, Then my God put into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of, of those who came up at the first, and I found written in it. Let's stop there. First of all, reformers, understand the importance of the community. To use this in terms that we've talked about already, reformers have deep convictions concerning the importance of the community. A deep conviction about the community of God, the church of God, being a part of God's community. So here we have the first set. What's going on is the first set of returnees are being allowed to return back into the city. The inhabitants, those who are supposed to be there, that are sorting through. And basically these exiles are coming back to be a part of the place of God. Now I want to quickly define community, just very, very quickly. Who was in? Who was in at this point? It was God's chosen people, namely the Israelites. This was largely done by ethnicity, the bloodline of the Israelites. Now the Gentiles... By and large, Gentiles meaning those who were not Jews, by and large, were excluded from the community. God had chosen the Israelites to display His glory through them. And I would not do justice to all that, but we must move on. Why is, this, why is it important? Why is community important at this point? This is important for us to understand why it's important. Being a part of the community meant, ultimately, that you were part of the covenant. Now, it's important to understand something very basic about divine covenants. We'll steal this language from Johnny Mac. Some of you know him as John MacArthur. He said this, divine covenant, I think this is helpful. Divine covenant is an agreement in which God binds himself to carry out his personal promise to his people to redeem them from sin and bless them forever. Let me say that again. Divine covenant is an agreement in which God binds himself to carry out his personal promise to his people to redeem them from sin and bless them forever. That's his promise. He doesn't bind himself to all people to do that, but he binds himself to some to redeem them from sin and bless them forever. Now, faith and obedience are the marks of of the people who have experienced the fulfillment of the covenant. So those people who have experienced the the giving of the covenant, the promise of the covenant, they will exercise or live in response in faith and obedience. So this is important. So being a part of the community meant that you were part of the covenant. So being a part of the community to live by faith and obedience meant that you were a recipient of God's divine covenant. So really what what it means is that God had redeemed you from sin and blessed you forever with His presence. That's a big deal, right? It's a very big deal. You can see why defining the community or the defining of the community makes it so important. To be a part of the community of God meant everything. Both spiritually and even physically. They believed, as we should, that everything depended on God. Food, safety, children, health, eternity, etc., redemption, all of that. We weren't a part of the community of God. That means that we weren't a part of the covenant of God, which meant that all of that is involved in God's covenant to His people were not mine to be had. It's very important to be a part of the community of God. 
So you see, there was no hope upon exclusion from the community. It's kind of a sub-point if you're looking for There's no hope upon exclusion from the community. If you were not a part of the people of God, that meant that the blessings of the covenant were not yours to be had. Very quickly, we think of this point, maybe like we think of the specifically the Abrahamic covenant. You will live in the land that I provide. You will be my people. I will be your God. This is God making His covenant commitment to His people. You will be a blessing to the nations. This is God's covenant. And when they're coming back, when they have this in mind of we want to be in the community of God, the idea here is the Abrahamic covenant. And once again, that God had redeemed you from sin has blessed you forever. Now, because of your redemption, because of the people's redemption, then they would be a blessing to the nations, and I'm kind of hinting at something for the future, but a blessing to the nations as they would call the nations back to God in grace and love. And that, was, that was the purpose, that they would be a blessing to the nations, ultimately by displaying God and calling the nations back to God in grace and love. Alright, so, there's no hope upon exclusion from the community. Again, why? So you have the Abrahamic covenant, then after that comes the Mosaic covenant, comes the sacrificial system. Uh, offering a sacrifice as, a, as an evidence of obedience and faith. So what happens then <clears throat> is, you had no way, if you were not a part of the community of God, you had no way of carrying out this faith and obedience displayed in sacrifice. It's just a very practical example of why it was so important to be a part of the community. You couldn't go make sacrifices for your sin. Among those whom, who God had chosen to make recipients of His divine covenant, namely, again, to redeem them from sin and bless them forever, His presence dwelt. Right, so this was very important. These people understood that to be a part of this community, this was the community where God dwelt. We want to be there. This is a good thing. God leads His people. God takes care of His people. God blesses His people. So I have is God had prepared a place for Himself to dwell by choosing, redeeming, and blessing a people, namely, with His presence forever. Which I would propose to you that the goal for us, like the, the gift of the gospel is redemption, it's the presence of God. That we would dwell in His presence, He would dwell in us. So to be a part of the dwelling place of God and then display the fruit of faith and obedience meant that God has chosen you as a recipient of His redemption and forever blessing. So to be not a part of the community meant that all of those good things are not yours. All of this is why now coming back to Jerusalem to be a part of the community was so important. Again, to them it was everything. To be out of the community meant that you were a Gentile. And if you were a Gentile, then you were a stranger and alien to the promises of God. That the promise, the covenant that God had made was not yours to be had. Now, I want to take you to Ephesians chapter 2. Keep your finger in Nehemiah 7 or something in Nehemiah 7. We're going to now go back and forth to Ephesians 2 and Nehemiah 7, okay? Ephesians 2, verse 11. We'll finish out Ephesians chapter 2 by the time we're done today. All right, verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, so called the Gentiles by those who are called the Jews, which is made by the flesh, or made in the flesh by hands, speaking of the circumcision. Remember that we're at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. All right. And just as a point of disclaimer here this morning, <clears throat> I'm not going to do Ephesians 2 justice, all right? My goal is not to do Ephesians 2 justice. My goal is to do Nehemiah 7 justice this morning. But Ephesians 2 is going to help us. 
do justice. So just for the warning. All right. So he says you were without hope, without God in the world, strangers to the covenants of promise. So what was true, think with me here, what was true for those outside the community or the covenant in Nehemiah was true of us. For those of us who are now followers of Christ, that was true of us. The same thing for these people wanting to come into the community is the same thing for us, or was true of us. Now the thing, if, you, if you're looking for a sub-point, I want to, to give you this. We must realize that there is no hope outside the community. We must realize, as reformers, that there is no hope outside the community. It was that important to be a part of the, it was everything to be a part of the community. And, we, and, and to continue that sub-point, and we must realize how much hope there is inside the community. So if you're, a glass, if you're kind of negative or positive, you can take that however you want. There's realize, no hope outside the community. There's all the hope inside the community. No hope outside, all the hope inside. So let's just work through this Ephesians passage just very quickly. He says, alienated from the people of God. Those Gentiles that were, that were not able to be a part of the community then and for us, prior to our walk with Christ and our redemption in the gospel, we were alienated from the people of God. You were not a part of the community of God. Your friends, your co-workers, your family members that have not been redeemed are alienated from the people of God. They're not a part of the community of God. God does not dwell in their midst and He did not dwell in our midst. His good pleasure and joy was not ours to be had and is not theirs to be had. Alienated from the people of God, strangers to the covenant of promise, the covenant with Abraham. Because what he's speaking of there. The hope of redemption and forever blessing was not ours to be had. You were not God's people living under God's rule and His blessing. He says there's no hope. Wow. No hope. No hope for the future. No hope for deliverance. No hope of redemption. There's no hope of dwelling with God. There's no hope. He says, without God in the world. I think, I think what Paul means to say, or what he is saying here, is that you're without the presence of the one and only true God. Now, let me remind you, church, that you were, we were without God in the world because we did not want Him. Because we did not want Him. We rejected Him, refused Him, and given to our own desires would always choose to worship ourselves. Now today, I want to encourage you, if you're, a, if you're not a follower of Christ, if you've not placed your faith in His work on the cross for your sins as payment for your sins and belief that He died for you and that, and that you now abide in His Word and seek to follow Him as your teacher and that you are still strangers to the covenant promises and have no hope and are without God in the world. Paul's, what Paul is saying was true of those who follow Jesus is true of you. It's a scary place to be. But there's hope, right? There's hope. You have to hang on that for a little bit. We'll get to that hope in a little bit. If you're a follower of Jesus, we have to realize this, that we had no hope, and there is no hope outside God's community. There is nothing but destruction and demise, vanity and emptiness. There's nothing but that outside. And I, and I think, I think, guys, I, th- I think we see the people around us and, and they live what appears to be relatively happy, you know, content lives. And, and what we, we kind of become okay with that. Like, so we kind of begin to think that there is hope outside the community. We need to wake up and realize there is no hope outside God's community. 
There is only death and destruction, both on this side of life and the afterlife, that awaits. There is no hope. But there's all the hope in the world inside of God's community. I wonder if we truly believed in the vanity and emptiness of this world that we often long to be a part of, that we would then proclaim the way into the community of God. Let's go back to Nehemiah chapter 7. Starting in verse 6. To verse 60. Right? I'm going to jump a bunch of verses here real quick. <clears throat> Let's have fun. These were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his town. They came to Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Nehemiah, there we go. The number of the men of the people of Israel, the sons of Perosh, 2,172, the sons of Shephatiah, 372, the sons of Ara, 652, the sons of Pathamoab, namely the sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2,818, the sons of Elam, 1,254, the sons of Zatu, 845, the sons of Zechariah, 760, the sons of Binui, 648, and the sons of Babay, 628, the sons of Asgod, 2,322, the sons of Adonikam, there 667, the sons of Bigvi, 2,067, the sons of Adon, 655, the sons of Eder, namely of Hezekiah, 98, the sons of Hashem, 328, the sons of Bazai, 324, the sons of Heraph, 112, the sons of Gibeon, 95, the men of Bethlehem and Notophah, 188, the men of Anathoth, 128, the men of Beth Asmapheth, 42, the men of, yep, 743, the men of Ramah and Anathoth, 128, the men of Beth Asmaveth, 42, the men of Kiriath, Jerim, Shifra, yep, 743, the men of Ramah and Geba, 621, the men of Michmas, 122, the men of Bethel and I, 123, the men of the other Nebo, 52, the sons of the other Elam, 1,254, the sons of Haram, 320, the sons of Jericho, 345, the sons of Lod, Hadid, and Ono, 721, and the sons of Sinai, 3,930. Let's continue, verse 39. The priests, the sons of Jedi, Jedi namely the house of Jeshua, 973. The sons of Imar in 1,052. The sons of Pasher, 1,247. The sons of Haram, 1,017. The Levites, the sons of Jeshua, namely of Kedmiel, of the sons of Hodavai, Hodavai, Hodavai. There we go, 74. The singers, the sons of Asaph, 148. The gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, the sons of Ader, the sons of Talmud, the sons of Akim, the sons of Hittah, the sons of Shabiah, 138. The temple servants, the sons of Zihah, the sons of Hasaphah, the sons of Tubath, the sons of Keros, the sons of Siah, the sons of Pedon, the sons of Lebanon, the sons of Hagabah, the sons of Shalmai, the sons of Hanan, the sons of Gedel, the sons of Gehar, the sons of Riah, the sons of Rezin, the sons of Nakoda, the sons of Gazam, the sons of Uzzah, the sons of Pasah, the sons of Basay, the sons of Manum, the sons of Nefeshuah, the sons of Backbuck, the sons of Hakafa, the sons of Harher, the sons of Bazlith, the sons of Mahida, the sons of Harsha, the sons of Barkos, the sons of Sisera, the sons of Tamah, the sons of Neziath, the sons of Hittaphah, the, the sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of Sotai, the sons of Sepher, the sons of Peridah, the sons of Jaila, the sons of Darkon, the sons of Gedel, the sons of Shephatiah. The sons of Hattel, the sons of Pachrith, Hazapim, the sons of, the, of Amon, all the temple servants. And the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. Whew. Take a drink. Now I'm really worn out. <clears throat> all right. My tongue is worn out. All right. I did that on purpose, just for the record. 
read through all of that, because this is very important, all right? Reformers who have deep convictions about the hope for man inside the community of God will proclaim the way into the community. And what we see here is the way into the community. Reformers proclaim the way into the community. Nehemiah is reading from the book of genealogy here. <clears throat> These are the people that God had chosen, that God had covenanted with, that God had chosen to redeem. This was the way into the community, was God's choosing. These are the people whose names have been written down. So here, God is bringing, bringing His people back from exile. This is a glorious picture all of these people, all of these tribes, all of these families are being brought back out of exile into the family of God. God had made a covenant with His people that He would be their God, that they would be His people, that they would live in His place. And you're seeing God be faithful to this covenant. Now, now here's the deal. There's a picture of redemption here that we cannot miss. <clears throat> so, to recount, Prior to the exile of Nehemiah, what you have is the people were in faithful relationship with God, right? They were living in God's place. They disobeyed God. They were sent into exile to be ruled by another, lowercase g, God, another king. Now what happens is God has restored the temple and the city and is bringing redemption to His people. He's rescuing them out of their disobedience. He's bringing them back to be His people. This physical restoration of His people ultimately, I believe, is pointing to something greater. Now, the people coming back from exile, right? This is another picture of similar to the redemptive exodus event, right? So God's people in exile, in slavery in Egypt. God miraculously works through a Christ figure, Moses, to bring about the salvation of his people, to rescue them out of Egypt, here, God, miraculously working through a Christ type, Nehemiah, to bring about the salvation of his people, bringing them out of exile back to be his people. All of this pointing to a greater reality that Christ himself will save God's people once and for all. Let's continue in Ephesians verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, I mean, think about this picture here. You who were once outside of the community of God have been brought near by what? What, church? The blood of Christ. Right? Not by Nehemiah, not by Moses, by the blood of Jesus Christ. For He Himself is our peace. More of that in a second. Who has made us both one, and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Not going to do that one justice today. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. That He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. All right, let's talk about this for a few moments. God's purpose, I believe, all along in calling the Jews as the holy people of God was to send them as missionaries to the Gentiles. That He would bring them, that they would call them, the nations, back to God in grace and in love. And I don't think it's ever been just about the salvation of the Jews. It's always been about the salvation of the nations. Those Gentiles, the non-people of God, he says here in Ephesians 2, have been brought near. How were they brought near? They were brought near by a Jew. His name was Jesus. And he brought us near. He brought us into the community. You see, the way into the community ultimately is through the blood of Christ. So the animal blood that was spilt in the temple by the priests was pointing to a greater reality, the spilling of Christ's blood. So they needed to be a part of the community so they can offer sacrifices and live that life of obedience and faith and sacrifice. But now, all of that's pointing to the spilling of Christ's blood. 
You see, it was important to be a part of the community and be found on this list of names we just read so that you can take these sacrifices and live out this faithful and therefore live as God's people. All of this, however, pointing to the spilling ultimately of Christ's blood that would cover the altar of our hearts and in that place will God receive the sacrifice and dwell in His people. So the way into the community is through the blood. The new covenant. More on that in a second. Now, what else does he say here in Ephesians? What else does he say? The blood of Christ brings peace. The blood of Christ brings peace. What's the peace that the Christ's blood brings? Another quote from MacArthur, he says, Sin is basically selfish. Peace comes only when self dies. And the only place self truly dies is at the foot of the cross. This is why Jesus had to die in order to establish a new covenant in His blood so that we would die with Him. Jesus, as He comes, brings peace. Luke 2.20, very quickly. The like, and likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying this is at the Lord's Supper, this cup is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. You see, the war that we were engaged in with God, so when we were not the people of God, that war that we were engaged in with God and with God's people comes to an end upon death. Someone has to die. We die with Christ in order for this peace to be had. I'm going to explain that a little more in just a second. Then the blood of Christ brings about a new man. Right? It's Ephesians 2. The way into the community is through the blood. The blood of Christ brings peace. The blood of Christ brings about a new man. We have to die in order to enter the new covenant. Right? So this is important. How do we do that? Romans 6.6 6 says this. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. There's a very real sense in which those who are being brought near, Jesus dies on their behalf, but then when we repent and place faith in Christ, that we die with Him. And for if we have been united in death like this, we certainly shall, certainly shall be united with Him in a resurrection like His. So the way in is through death, crucified in the blood of Jesus, alive to Christ in the resurrection. So what's happening here is that we've been brought near. So this is the main thing I want you to get, right? Is that we've been brought near who, those who were once far off by the blood of Christ. He has reconciled us to God. The way into the community is through the blood of Christ. That's the main thing that I want you to walk away with. Let's go back to Nehemiah chapter 6. Or chapter 7, rather. The following were those who came up, verse 61, the following were those who came up from Tel Malah, Tel Harshah, Sherab, Adon, and Immer, but they could not prove their father's houses nor the descent, whether they belonged to Israel, the sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nekedah, also of the priests, the sons of Hobiah, the sons of Hakaz, the sons of Barzillai, who had taken a wife and the daughters of Barzillai and and Gileadite and was called by their name. These sought, hear this, these sought the registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but it was not found there. So they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. <coughs> Excuse me, the governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until a priest with Urim and Thummim should arise. All right, so reformers, let's think about this for a second. Reformers must have deep convictions about the hope found in the community and proclaim the way into the community. Reformers must also be deeply concerned with those who's, who are in the community and who isn't in the community. So we see Nehemiah is concerned about the right people being a part of the community. The reformers, I'm going to give a more of a broad imperative thing, uh, point here, but reformers call people to join the community. And I kind of have two parts to this, okay? First is this, 
we want to be vigilant about determining who's in and who is out. Nehemiah is, is it's important to him to determine who's in and who is out. Nehemiah was very vigilant about this. We want to be vigilant about who's in and out. Why? Why? Why does it matter to determine who's in and who's out? And I don't mean in an ultimate sense. Ultimately, God is the judge. But, but the purity of the body, the purity of the community of God. Why is that so important? Because we're talking about ultimately who's redeemed and who isn't. This was Nehemiah's concern. Who was the recipients of the covenant and who wasn't? This is crucial. Just as man was meant to image God as he subdued the earth, so the local church, the universal church even, is meant to image, I'm sorry, so the local church is meant to image the universal church as we live together as kingdom citizens. Let me say it again. I botched that. Just as man was meant to image God as he subdued the earth, as, as man subdued the earth, the local church, we image the universal church as we live together as kingdom citizens. So here's the deal. The purity of the body, who's in who's out, who's truly the followers of Christ, is important. Just as it was important in Nehemiah's day. We want to think in those terms. It doesn't mean that we go around like policemen. You go, right? Remember that when we, we studied church discipline? They had church discipline cops. Remember that? Any of you remember that? A few of you do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was fun. So we're not, you know, on stakeouts trying to, well, man, he's not really part of the community, you know. But, but it's still valuable that we know who's in, who's out. Why? Because it's, it's a mark of who's redeemed, or it's a part of who's redeemed and who isn't. Just as man, I, I said that already. Now, because we are vigilant about determining who is in and who is out, here's what this does, all right? It enables us to be adamant in calling people to join. We know who's in, who's out. We know the hope that's in and the non-hope that's out. Then we can be adamant about the good news. If, if you're out, here's the good news. You can come in. How can you come in? By faith in Christ. So let's read Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17. And He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. Jesus is Himself good news. He is good news. And He came to preach to us good news. What is this good news? That we both have access to the, Spirit, to the Father in one Spirit. That we both have access. We and the Jews have access to the Father. That we get the Father. We get to commune, walk, love, submit, have joy in the Father. That we as reformers want to preach peace. If our God, Jesus, came and preached peace, we want to preach peace. Now, not world peace. That comes as a result. But peace with God. Right? Peace with God's people. We want to announce the good news. Good news that there is peace through the blood with the Father. That you were at war with God and God's people. That you're an enemy of God, but when your sins are forgiven through the blood of Jesus, you can have peace. Do we understand that the people that we work with that don't follow Jesus, the people we go to school with that don't follow Jesus, the people that live next to us that don't follow Jesus, that they don't have peace. They will never have peace. Peace. A deep conviction about the hope within leads to a serious call to those without. Let me say that again. A deep conviction about the hope within, the peace within, leads to a serious call to those without. We share with them the way in repentance and faith in the work of Jesus on the cross. We call people to join the community. If you're not a follower of Jesus, hear the good news. If you're not sure if you're a follower of Jesus, hear the good news. You are at war with God, but there is peace to be had in the sacrifice of His Son. 
Repent of your sins. Place your faith in Jesus as the payment for those sins. Lay yourself humbly before the throne of God. There is peace to be had at the throne of God. Amen? See, to be part of the community of God is there's peace. There's reconciliation at the foot of the cross. Let's go back to Nehemiah. Verse 66, the whole assembly together was 42,360 besides their male and female servants of whom there were 7,337. <clears throat> they had 245 singers, male and female. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, and their donkeys 6,720. Now some of the heads of fathers' houses gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasurer 1,000 of gold, 50 basins, 30 priests' garments, and 500 minus of silver. And some of the heads of fathers' houses gave to the treasury of the work, 20,000 derricks of gold and 2,200 minus of silver. And what the rest of the people gave was 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,000 minus of silver, and 67 priests' garments. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns and when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. <coughs> Here's all I want to see for right now. Is as we join the community of God, we realize that God is building His community. I mean, look at what God is doing in Nehemiah 7. What He's bringing together. The place where He will dwell. See, reformers trust that God will build His community and there He will dwell. If it's the hope there's no hope without, the only hope within, the only hope to be within is that God would build it, that God, these things would come together as God brings them together. I mean, think about all of, even just the journey of Nehemiah and what's happened for God to orchestrate all of this. So that at this point now, we have exiles entering into this city that has been trying to be built, the people have been trying to build for years and years and years and years and years, and then Nehemiah all of a sudden, in 52 days, God brings it all together. Here the people are entering back into the city, bringing all of their contributions to be the people of God. In Nehemiah's day, as a part of God's city, they all had different roles, different, different things to play, different things to contribute. And by God's orchestration, He brings all these people together, equips them all together, then gathers them to be His people. He builds them and is building them to be a dwelling place for Himself. Let's go back to Ephesians, verse 19. So then, you who are no longer strangers and aliens. Do you hear that? Do you hear that? You who were far away. So all these people that couldn't come, you now strangers and aliens. You, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Think about that. God has brought you near through the blood. You are now fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What is God doing in Nehemiah 7? He's building a dwelling place for himself. What is that pointing to? It's pointing to what we see here in Ephesians. Now, I want to pause because there's something beyond Ephesians that he's pointing to as well, but we'll get to that in just a second. So now, no longer strangers to the community. We're no longer strangers. When we come together, what are we? We are members of God's household. Made me think of that old audio adrenaline song, right? Big, big house. You know that one I'm talking about? <clears throat> From the 90s. If you miss music in the 90s, it's okay. At least Christian music in the 90s. Members of God's household. 
members of God's house, and we're now members of God's community through the blood of Christ. I hope I didn't offend you on that, but we're now members of God's community through the blood of Christ. Hear, hear, hear that, right? We're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. When Jesus is cornerstone, I think what he's referring to is the teachings that God has given them, given through them. We're members of God's household. You're now a part of the community of God. So here's the picture, right? I could have kind of bring everything together here. Here's the picture. The wall is built. The temple is finished. All that's needed is the people. So Nehemiah pulls out the book of genealogy, right? He's got the list of names. Can you imagine? I hope my name's in there, right? I want my name to be in that book. He's looking to see whose names are written down as the people of God. He's looking because it's a purity reason. A holy reason. The people of God, to be the people of God, must remain pure and holy. Nehemiah is looking to the book to determine who gets to dwell in the city of God and who doesn't. Who gets to be among God's presence and who doesn't. Who are the recipients of His covenant and who isn't. And I don't want to propose that all of this is pointing to something even greater, right? So think with me for a second. As Christ comes, He lives the law perfectly. He submits to the Lordship of His Father and brings Him honor totally and completely on His own. He lives out the law perfectly. No sacrifice needed for Jesus. God dwells in Him. He dies on the cross, not for His sins, because He has no sins, but for our sins... He dies. Of course, God uses this. This is the means by which God establishes His new covenant. Reminded here of Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. Jesus, remember in Luke 2, 20, says that this is the new covenant that I make in my blood. I establish in my blood. He says, I will make, here in Jeremiah Many, many years earlier, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I had made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. What's he do? He writes the law on his people's hearts and they respond by faith to Jesus' work on the cross. As God continues to work out his covenant in our lives, we are, he says in 22 of chapter 2 of Ephesians, in him, we're also being built together into what? A dwelling place for God. So as we are crucified, this kind of bring it all together here. As we are crucified with Christ and laying down of our self-righteousness and replacing it, God replacing it with Christ's righteousness, we are then raised with Christ in His resurrection. As we are raised with Christ in His resurrection, as we are now cleansed and purified temples, covered in the blood of Jesus, we are being built together into a dwelling place for God. What's it mean? be a part of the community of God? How do you get in? Through the blood of Jesus, the new covenant. What's it mean? What, what's it mean to be a part of the new covenant? To be a part of the community? You're being built into a dwelling place for God. Why are these people wanting to be a part of the community of God? Because God dwelt there. Because the blessings of God came from there. We want to be a part of that because that's where God is. And then what does Jesus do? He brings us in from afar. Brings us in, washes us with blood, and builds us in to be, not just to reside where God resides, but to be the place that God would reside. So then in the community of God, God dwells as He dwells in His people. Now let me point you to one last thing. 
there will come a day when a new book will be pulled out, right? There will be a day when a new book comes out. And a new list of names, not new then, but different than this list of names. But this time, these these names will be written in blood, right? Stain, they cannot be wiped away. I want to read to you Revelation 21, this verse 9 through 27, very quickly. It says, Then came one of the seven angels, this is John, right? This came one of the seven angels who had seven bulls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its mountain, and I'm sorry, having the glory of God, its radiance, like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall and twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes, the sons of Israel, were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had three gates. Uh, On the wall of the city had twelve foundations. And on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who had spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with its rod, 12,000 stadiah. Its length and its width and its height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third gate, the fourth, (coughs) sorry, the third gate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth chameleon, the seventh chrysolite, and the eighth beryl, and the ninth topaz, the the tenth Christophrase, the eleventh Jasper, and the twelfth Amethyst, and the twelfth, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. Verse 22. Yeah, I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, right? For the glory of God lives. The glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no light there, no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean, hear these, nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anything, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. How do we get into the community? Why is the community so important? We get into the community through the blood of Christ, through the Lamb's book of life. What are we as we enter into the community? We become the dwelling place of God. All for what purpose? That then we would be the image bearers of Christ, God, in His city, reigning and ruling under Him. God had intended that in the garden, but even the garden was not what was planned for in the future, where we would be His people, He would dwell in us, we would reign and rule underneath Him. What's the way into the city? The way into the community? It's by the blood of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. We'll sing. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you that Nehemiah is pointing us to that we are meant to be the dwelling place of God. And that by the blood of the Lamb, we are indeed made to be the dwelling place of God.
that being a part of the community means we've been recipients of the covenant. And, and as new covenant recipients, that means we are recipients of the blood washing of Jesus. And that upon that blood washing, that you would dwell in us. Lord, I pray as we worship you in these next brief moments that, that we would understand that you dwell now in your people and that we look forward to a heavenly city. All because our Savior died to bring those who were far away to bring them near. Father, let us, let us know and believe and trust that you've brought us near. That you have indeed saved us from our sins. Father, I love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.